to Bezalel um, the gift of craftsmanship in the building of the tabernacle. And it said that uh, God had gifted uh, him and, and along with others um, skill uh, for his building. And certainly uh, the gifts that God has given you guys are on display through your leadership of us in worship. And very grateful to sit under you all tonight. So thank you. Um, tonight we're going to talk about uh, in the, the five outcomes of the Christian life, the fruit of the Spirit. And so we're going to turn to Galatians chapter 5 tonight, verses 17 to 24. Galatians chapter 5, 17 to 24. Um, and I know that, uh, that Frank preached on this text two weeks ago. I uh, listened to that and um, he had some wonderful things to say. If you haven't heard uh, that message, I would encourage you to go on Powell. Pals Chapel's uh, website and listen to the podcast of that sermon. Um, so I want to take our focus tonight in a, in a little bit different direction um, and kind of bore down on, uh, on something for us concerning what this looks like in the context of the local church. But if you would read along with me, Galatians chapter 5, verses 17 to 24. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Let's pray together. Um, Father, as we come to this text, uh, and, and we just read it, Lord, I ask that You would read us through it. That You would expose us to places and recesses and nooks and crannies in our own heart and mind and soul and attitude and words that we have pushed aside. That You would convict us graciously, particularly with where we have had blinders on our eyes, And that in love you would remove those, as Paul said, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. Lord, would you do that so that in in seeing um, our sin, we would see uh, how deep and wide uh, the height, the breadth, the width, the length of your love for us as we just sang. God, would you challenge us tonight as well? And so you know where to put the finger. God on our hearts, and and I simply ask that you would do that. Um, Thank you for your word in the way that you have ordained um, to work through your word, by your spirit, in your world to accomplish your purposes. And so your your word is a scalpel, and it cuts us open, it lays us bare, um, it does surgery. So I, I simply ask humbly that you would do that tonight on us, in Jesus' name, amen. Um, the big idea for us tonight, um, applying Galatians 5, 7 to 14, particularly to us concerning uh, the fruit of the Spirit 
is this, that we are called to suffer with each other through growth. And and I want to use that word, uh, I I picked it intentionally. Um, Initially, I thought about uh, the idea of being, that we are called to be patient with each other through growth. But I don't know that the word patient quite gets at it uh, the way that suffering does. And so that word will come back up in the list that Paul gives to us concerning the fruit of the Spirit. Um, But I I chose the word suffer um, in particular, that we are called to suffer with each other through growth. And here are the reasons why, why, and and there's three tonight that I want to look at from this text. First is that your growth is slow. The second is that the Spirit's work is certain. So your growth is slow. The Spirit's work is certain. And lastly, is that our idolatry runs deep. Alright, so I hope to show us that from the text tonight. That your growth is slow, that the Spirit's work is certain, and that our idolatry runs deep. And so in all of that, we are called to suffer. To continue long on a, a road that is not easy with each other through our growth. And that's the, that's the good news. That's the, the positive news. So your growth is slow. And here's the reason why. So Paul says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Now I mentioned this morning from our text in Philippians about the three great enemies to your soul. I want to show you that from Ephesians. If you would flip over to Ephesians chapter 2. Now... Uh, John, in his letter to the churches in 1 John, also fleshes this out, but here you see it uh, succinctly in, in just a couple verses of our three great enemies. So if you follow with me in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Okay, so that's you. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of the world, that's the second one, so you've got the world there in verse 2, the flesh in verse 1, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, so you see the bookend in verse 1, and then again in verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So the three great enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's almost like Paul at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, and these three remain, uh, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Well, here Paul is saying, and these three are coming after you. They are your enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the greatest of these is... I got one vote for the devil. Is that right? Do I have a second on that one? I got the flesh. You might want to chime in with the world. The greatest of these is you. Now, that might be a little bit startling to you, but consider this. Is that no one will stand before God in the final analysis, and the final judgment, and say, the devil made me do it. And then hear from God the response, oh, okay, come on in then. I didn't realize that. 
No, the devil is a leech, right? Now, he is a tempter. He's an accuser. He's the father of lies. He's many things. But he is not God. He's a created being. God has created all things. And, and so Satan is an enemy on the leash, as, as some have said. So Satan twists, he warps, he distorts. But he can't put in you. What he does is, and I like to say it this way, is you wouldn't want to sit down at a, at a card table and play around a poker with Satan. Because he's been reading humanity forever, and he can read you like a book. But he's not God. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. The attributes that belong to God and to God exclusively are not Satan's. And so he can only play off of your own desires. So he tempts, but temptation has its power because of what is in you that you desire. And the same thing for the world. We're not going to face God in a final judgment and say, gosh, you don't realize the kind of cultural pressure I was under. And him, like, oh, you know, you're right. Come, come on in. No, we are going to be held personally accountable and responsible for our sin. And so the greatest enemy, and, and, and Frank mentioned this in his text in 1 Peter 2.11, I urge you, aliens and strangers, brothers, as aliens and strangers, to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. The enemy, the greatest enemy that you have is you. It's the enemy inside. And so your growth is slow. I, I'm, I'm setting up an argument here for why your growth is slow. First off is because you face an enemy within. So the reason that your growth is slow, Paul has chosen his metaphor about fruit particularly for us. It's a botanical reference. And because a seed planted grows very, very slowly. You know, it's like watching the paint dry. You, you plant something and you walk away. You go back the next day, nothing. The next day, nothing. The next day, nothing. Months can go by depending on what you planted. And you, you see nothing. And so we are called to suffer through our own growth because our growth is slow. And we are not to judge moment by moment. Again, you could go out to, to continue on with Paul's metaphor and watching the seed grow waiting for something to happen and think nothing's happening. Uh, from one day to the next, one week to the next, one month to the next, nothing. And we live in such a, a quick fix culture that you know, we have been trained with instant gratification. We want it now. I, I, I joke, I'm, an, I'm a technological dinosaur. Um, some of the guys were making fun of me last night because I just got a smartphone within this past year. Um, I've had an old flip phone forever. And if, if there were enough pay phones around, I'd get rid of all of it, and I would just keep quarters in my pocket and, and give out pay phone numbers and say, you can catch me there at this time, I'll be driving by. Uh, I, I, I can't stand it. And I've, I've thought about this quite a bit. You know, when I was a kid growing up, we had nothing but landline phones, you know, and you would get the really long cord so you could stretch it down the hallway or go in the bathroom and shut the door so your parents didn't hear you talking. You know the drill. So my kids have no idea about any of this stuff. And... But what it did is it created in us this sense of, well, we had answering machines with real tapes, not, you know, digital stuff, real tapes that you'd take out and rewind. And somebody would call you, they leave a message, and in, in their mind, it was they'll get back in touch with me maybe tonight, 
Maybe they'll be out late. Maybe it'll be tomorrow. Now you have a cell phone and everybody, if you don't get somebody in five minutes, like, I know they saw that come in. I know they're just screening the call. I know that they saw me text and they're not, re- you know, you're tapping your foot after 30 seconds that you don't hear back from somebody. So we live in this like instant access, instant gratification, instant communication, instant everything. And we think about that concerning the spiritual walk that we face with the Lord, right? So you woke up today struggling with some particular sin and you think, gosh, why, why can't tomorrow I wake up and be a completely different person? That's a good question. Why would God do this this way? And I'll get to that. But the, the issue here for us is that ultimately, it's not how fast or how slow you're gaining ground, but the direction that you're headed. So the, the old man has died, and yet he continues to crop up his ugly head. So, as Paul tells us then, he says, do not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's verse 16. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. The word there, desire, is epithumia, and it means lust. It will be translated that in some English versions. So the lusts of the flesh are against the spirit. And, and this is what is happening within us. This is the battle that rages. Now, the good news here is that spirit there is capital S. This is not your little S spirit. This is the Holy Spirit. And if that doesn't give you a a sigh of relief, that this isn't a, a battle that you're facing in yourself on your own, but this is a battle that God is waging against you, for you. And and. You know, the scripture tells us, Paul tells us that we are more than conquerors. We are victorious. But this battle will be won. This is God's promise and God's commitment to us. And and there's great news there. Now, if you follow on then from verse 17, when he says, For these are opposed to each other, that's your flesh and God's spirit, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. This is reminiscent of Romans 7. Frank mentioned this in his sermon. And, and it's very insightful because Paul says in Romans 7, a passage that maybe many of you are familiar with, he says, the things that I want to do, I do. And the things that I do want to do, I don't do. So you see this inner conflict even with the Apostle Paul. And so misery loves company. That ought to give us a sense of encouragement that the man who wrote two-thirds of our New Testament battled within himself. Now, theologians debate whether or not Paul was saved reflecting on his time before he was saved in Romans 7 and then salvation in 8, I believe that Paul is giving us insight into his life now. That that he sees the law at work within himself. That he wants to present himself to God righteous because of him. And then he keeps failing himself. He sets standards for himself that even he can't live up to. And so our growth is slow and there's this battle to keep us from doing the things that we want to do. And that is the key. The end there of verse 17 is is crucial for us to understand. Later on, when we talk about crucifying the flesh, the real issue is at stake is your fundamental desire. And in Christ, it has changed. It doesn't mean that you won't lapse. It doesn't mean that you won't lose battles. 
But what it does mean is that you're in the war. That it really is a battle. That it really is a struggle. That you haven't laid down, that you haven't given up, that you haven't raised the white flag and submitted to your own desires. You are at war. And so when at the end of verse 17 it says, these are opposed to each other, the flesh and the spirit, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do, you want to do what would please your Father. That, that's your fundamental want. You're going to fail. You're going to mess up. You're going to lose battles, but you want to. Indy Wilson, uh, who is a professor at New St. Andrews College in Moscow, Idaho, um, told a story about being in grad school. He went to an Ivy League school. I think it was Brown uh, or Yale. He was working on a master's. And there was a night where he and a group of 10 classmates all went to this pub in the New England state that they were in. And he said it was he and this Catholic guy were among the ten, and everyone else were either professed atheists or agnostics. And he said as they, they sat there and they you know, talked and laughed and enjoyed each other's company, he said one girl in particular who was very loud and, and boisterous turned to N.D. and the Catholic guy and said, do you all think that I'm going to go to hell when I die? And, and he said, it's the kind of question that, you know, you're put on the spot, you feel like the spotlight is on you. He said immediately he could feel his hands getting clammy and the hair standing up on the back of his neck. He said he looked over and the Catholic guy said, yes. And, and so he's like, okay. And so then all the attention turned to him at that point. He thought, oh gosh, you know, what do I say here? And, and so then he turned to the girl and he said, don't you want to? And, and she looked at him in that kind of dumbfounded, you know, shocked, jaw-on-the-floor kind of look, expression. And she said, why would I want to go to hell? He said, well, you don't believe in God. No. Well, then, if there is a heaven, and that heaven is an eternal existence of worship and adoration and service and love of this God that you denied, that would be hell to you. You wouldn't want that. God has changed our fundamental wants in giving us His Spirit. Now again, there's still that, that conflict. We still feel that rub. You feel it every day. And yet your core, your, your fundamental want to, has been changed. So, so the end of verse 17 is pivotal here. So your growth is slow. Now, God increases that appetite, right? Jesus preached on that in, in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are all those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. It's not instantaneous. It's not all at once. God fills us. He, he satisfies our longings with Himself. And, and the issue then is our want to. So our growth is slow, just like the seed in the ground. And we don't take it moment by moment, but through seasons of life. It's the trajectory. Again, it's not how much ground you're gaining moment to moment, but the direction you're heading that matters. And so simply ask you the question, you know, does your life look today like it did two years ago? Or five years ago? Or ten years ago? What, what direction are you heading? And even better than for me to ask you that question would be for you to ask your friends that question. Or to ask your spouse that question. Ask the people closest to you. 
So our growth is slow. The Spirit's work is certain. As you continue on here, now he gives us this vice list in verse um, 18 and following. This is one of many lists in the New Testament. If you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Those three words all have to do with um, sex, verse 20 and following, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions, and envy. Those eight words all have to do with interpersonal relationships. And then the last two words have to do with substance abuse, with addiction, drunkenness, and orgies. These are not sexual orgies attached to drunkenness in close proximity. These are drinking parties. And so, uh, I, I just think about this because I live in a city that uh, our, our state has more overdoses per capita than any other state in the country, West Virginia. Um, there was a documentary that was done on the city of Huntington that Netflix did, a Netflix original months ago, called Heroin, um, where they followed three women around the city of Huntington um, talking about the opioid epidemic that we have. And, and the thing that I think about most often when I think about the the epidemic and the spiritual oppression that we face in my city um, when Paul takes this list to drunkenness and orgies at the the end is that ultimately this is a spiritual battle. Um, Ultimately this isn't in the final analysis something that is superficially about drugs. It's ultimately about the spirit. And so drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Now what Paul does there with things like these is this is a junk drawer expression to let us know that this is simply a list. It's not exhaustive. It's not comprehensive. It's a list. There are other things like these that could have made the list. So then he says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, Each one of those words could be a separate sermon. Um, explaining what all of these are, but all of that to wrap up and say that Paul is giving us identifiers of what our fleshly desires look like. And this is some of many. And so then he goes on to verse 22 and says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Um, we teach our kids uh, a lot of singing. I don't know if you ever remember the song. If ever I'm trying to recite this verse, the song comes up in my mind. I can't get through the list without singing the song in my mind. Some of you are like that with the ABC song. You know, somebody asks you where N follows in the the alphabet, and you have to A B C D E F G H I J K L M N N. It's right after M. You know, you have to go through the song. Well, I'm that way with this: uh, love, joy, peace, and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Okay, um, I'll, be, I'll hang out for an encore after we're done. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Um, so, the Spirit's work is certain. Now, there's one fruit. So, you've got this whole list, but the thing that Paul doesn't say to us is there are fruits of the Spirit. There's one fruit. And what I love about that understanding from Paul is that these things grow up together. Now you may see in your life characteristic, uh, characteristically strong or more evident um, 
working of the Spirit through some of these, but these things are inseparable. And, and they are the reality for each one of us in the Spirit. So this is one fruit of the Spirit manifest in love and joy, peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So it is certain. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I am sure, it's the same word, certain, I am sure of this, that He, being God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion. He, he does the same thing with 1 Thessalonians when he ends the letter by saying this, may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. That's what we're talking about. The, the spiritual fruit and spiritual growth is our life in Christ being changed and conformed to the image of Christ. That's, in a word, big theological word, sanctification. So may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, I'm reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely, same word, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He will surely do it. He will surely do it. So where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And the, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, is certain that, that this will be done in the Christian life. In many respects, then, this answers that million-dollar question where uh, we've all known people. And the, the question on the table of, gosh, somebody made a profession of Christ, but they're living like hell. What, what do we do with that? Well, the New Testament drives us to answers. Now, ultimately, as I've presented for you, we suffer long with people through their growth. But if they were a Christian, God will discipline them. That's Hebrews 12. He will because He loves them as true and legitimate children. Not illegitimate, but true children. He will discipline. He will correct. He will bring them back. There will be will be spiritual growth in their life. Again, you might not see it, but it will be there. It will be. This is certain. Love. I, I do want to take a few moments to go through each one of these words. I'm not doing that with the vice list, but I want to do that here because these things are characteristic of every one of you who are in Jesus Christ. Love. Love is so warped and distorted in our society. We have made love the epitome of our own emotional high and euphoria. So when it drops, we are out of love. We don't love anymore. We've fallen out of love. Love is not exalting someone and making much of them. Love is doing what is best for them. Love is doing what is best for someone. Joy. Love. Joy. Joy is godly contentment that is unfazed by circumstances. For the joy that was set before Him, Jesus endured the cross. Hebrews. For the joy set before Him, it is a godly contentment unfazed by circumstances. Peace. Peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is confidence in the midst of chaos. This is yours. This is yours. Love, joy, peace, patience. There's two Greek words that are put together to form this one word, and I love it. The old King James, love, joy, peace, 
Long-suffering. That's the word. Macrothumia. Not microthumia, macrothumia. Uh, uh, you know, macroeconomics, big economics. It is long-suffering. You, you ask God to give you patience with your children, patience with your spouse, patience with your church members, patience with your coworkers, patience with your employees. You're asking Him to help you suffer long with them. To continue to walk the same road, the same path, unwaveringly. It is endurance through adversity. And this is a fruit. Kindness is a constant readiness to help. Goodness is a consistency of character. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Goodness means that you're not a different person tomorrow than you were today. Goodness means that around your friends that don't attend Powell's Chapel, you're not a different person. You're the same person. This is a consistency, a constancy of character. Faithfulness, that you're reliable and true to your word. Gentleness, and I love this word, not because of connotations in our culture about what this means, but because of what it really means. It's humility. It's meekness. It's power restrained. Gentleness. It, it, interestingly enough, now we're reading from, you know, this is our English translation of the Greek, but Moses was called meek, gentle, translated in English translations, gentle. Uh, right after he was ready to slay everyone who was a heretic, who was violating God's law, and he was meek. Self-control is that though we have, you know, as Paul says, all things are but not all things are beneficial. Though you have liberty as a Christian, this prevents us self-control from license. This prevents us from using good things for bad purposes. And anything can be warped and distorted. And so self-control as a fruit of the Spirit is what prevents us from taking liberty and it becoming license. And so, this is then the Spirit's work. It is certain in us and, and the way that the Spirit works, and I, I, I want to say this before going to the last point, is that the Spirit works so that we are all on the same page being patient or suffering long with each other through our own slow growth and trusting the Spirit to do His work of that seed that's been planted in us by the Gospel is that the Spirit works through means. And, and here's what I mean by that. We pray that our daily you know, bread as Jesus taught us to pray. Lord, give us our daily bread. What we don't do is we don't sit back and say, rain down manna from heaven. Now, God could do that if He wanted to do that, but God works through means to answer that prayer. So we pray, Lord, give us our daily bread, and we go to work. And, and we work hard, and we trust God to send rain in season so that farmers can have a harvest, and that those farmers would do their job, and then the truck drivers who take that harvest to a processing plant, and those workers do their job, and then it's delivered to the bread factory, and then those workers do their job, and then to the grocery store, and then the stockers, and then the checkout girl, and then you go and buy it from your paycheck. And in all of that, we praise God. He delivered to us. He gave us our daily bread, exactly what He was going to do. That's the Christian doctrine of vocation. Uh, we've made vocation a strictly word about work. It's, it's a Latin word, vocatio. It means calling. And, and the Reformers had a robust understanding of Christian calling. 
And so in that same way of God working through means to provide for us, that's exactly what the Spirit does. So if we're looking to the Spirit for growth, what does that look like for us? This might strike you, and I hope it does. I want to quote J.I. Packer at length here. The Spirit works through means, through the objective means of grace. The means of grace. Namely, Shekinah glory revelations of bright bolts of lightning coming out of the sky as you were driving home from church. Dreams where you woke up and you had a vision. That's not where J.I. Packer goes. It's not the ordinary means of grace. Here's where he goes with this. Namely, biblical truth, prayer, fellowship, worship, the Lord's Supper. And with them, through the subjective means of grace, whereby we open ourselves to change. Namely, thinking, listening, questioning ourselves, examining ourselves, which... Peter instructs us to do, examine yourself to see that you're in the faith. Paul, 2 Corinthians 15. Examining ourselves, admonishing ourselves, sharing our hearts with others, weighing any response that they make. The Spirit shows His power in us, not by constantly interrupting our use of these means with visions, impressions, prophecies, but rather by making these regular means effective to change us for the better and for the wiser as we go along. I'm still quoting Packer here. Habit forming is the Spirit's ordinary way of leading us on in holiness. Most of the people that I counsel in my church and in my context who feel spiritually distant and isolated from God, most, not always, but most of the time when I start to ask questions, what does your time in the Word look like? What does your time in prayer look like? What does your time in the fellowship of the body look like? It it is uncanny how proportional it is. And and, and it's not rocket science. Like they're scratching their head wondering, why do I feel so distant from God? Because God has ordained means by which to, to meet with you and to grow you. Habit forming is the Spirit's ordinary way of leading us on in holiness. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control are all of them habitual ways of thinking, feeling, and behaving. We want the extraordinary. We want the bolt of lightning. We want the, the mountaintop experience. And we're waiting, and we're waiting, and we're waiting. And God has said... I'll meet with you in the mundane. Meet with you in the Pray. Read my Word. Fellowship with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Worship. Sing. Practice the sacraments, the ordinances, baptism and communion. And, and see what happens. Persevere in those things. And, and though you might not see it moment to moment, the seed is growing. God has ordained through His Spirit, and it is certain that He will do it. Gosh, I've got a great illustration. I'd love to share on that, but I've got one more point here that I, uh, I want to get to. Um, lastly, our idolatry runs deep. Look at verse 24. 
Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's it. So, the first point then again tonight was that our growth is slow. The second is that the Spirit's work is certain. And the reason that we suffer with each other through slow growth is because our idolatry runs deep. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Uh, We could say this another way, that we are crucifying the flesh. Jesus tells us this. Take up our cross daily and follow Him. And so crucifying the flesh is another way to say that we are to identify and dismantle idols in our life. It's not just what we're doing, but why are we doing it? That is is crucial for us to ask. And and so, our idolatry runs very, very deep. Um, Several months ago, several months ago, I, I was convicted of an idol in my life that God was starting to show me. Um, I, I've joked with Sarah, I said it's on my bucket list that somebody would look at me uh, unprovoked without me having like itty bitty little shorts on and, and shoes and somebody would say, hey, are you a runner? Because I've never gotten that. I'm, I'm built more like a, a linebacker. You know, my dad and all my uncles are broad shouldered. I've always been a bigger guy. And I took up running back in the last year or so and became very avid with it. And I, I joked with my wife and said, I just long for the day that somebody would look at me and be like, are you a runner? <laughs> yeah, check. And I started, to identi- I started to identify myself as that. And, and, and I started to realize it by the grace of God because I was becoming fixated um, to the sense of reading everything that I could, um, wanting to go on blogs, reading shoe reviews. Who reads shoe reviews, right? And, and so for me, I was doing all of that. And, and over a span of about two months, God showed me, this is becoming a way that you identify yourself. This is a lens through which you see yourself. So in the course of that, I picked up a book that I'd read 10 years ago, six years ago, and I started reading again, and it was on idolatry. And the author of the book says, there are three fundamental ways to identify an idol in your life. And he said this. He said, when you are doing nothing, you're not distracted with the chores and the errands and the tasks of the day, where does your mind go? Where does your mind go when it has nowhere to go? So the, the second thing, so if you ask yourself that question, this is, these are diagnostic questions for idols in your life. The second is, how do you identify yourself? You know, you're at a social event, and you're introducing yourself. Hey, I'm so-and-so. Where in your mind do you want to go? This is, this is what I do. This is how I see myself. And he said, the third question is, what sets you off? I found that one most interesting. Remember the scene in Acts when the apostles disrupt the craft trade because of the worship of the sex goddess Artemis in Ephesus? they, They said, hail Artemis of the Ephesians. But they had craftsmen who had made a lot of money Idolatry and and money always go hand in hand. And so they had craftsmen who had made a lot of money because of the worship of Artemis. And because of the spread of the gospel had gotten turned upside down, people were losing money. And they start a riot, a revolt. And I made a note in my Bible in that that passage, on that passage, um, concerning that worship, is that 
when an idol is threatened, you will always get defensive. What sets you off? James says it this way in James chapter 4, is you fight and you quarrel because of the passions within you. That's it. You, you have such an emotional high or low reaction to the thought of losing something that you've got or not getting something that you want, which is a direct line to an in your heart. And they run deep. They run absolutely deep. And so we are called crucifying the flesh means identifying and dismantling idols. And, and the word crucifixion, and this is how we'll end this morning, the, the, this evening. The word crucifixion is important. Uh, I'm pulling here from a commentator, and he says that crucifixion brought with it in everyone's mind, Romans and Jews alike, four things. Shame, pain, long or gradual, and final. You're not coming down off that cross until you're dead. Paul tells us to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. And so our idolatry runs deep. And this is what it means to crucify our flesh is that sin becomes more and more shameful to us. And find to be a practical application to that. Name your sin. It's easy for us, especially in the context of church with our Christians, Christian friends and brothers and sisters, to say, God, forgive me, I'm a sinner. But name it. And see how easily that rolls off your tongue. You lusted after somebody in particular. Name that person before the Lord. You're, you're greedy for gain. Call it what it is. And, and you will feel more and more if you do that, the real sense of the disgust, of the shame for sin. Crucifixion was the most shameful method of torture and death in the, in the Roman world. And, and sin is that to us. And so we ought to be disgusted with it. So it was shameful. Second, painful. Um, because this is the flesh, these are the desires of the flesh and the spirits at war against it. And this is the old man. This is the old us. Uh, the way that New Testament writers talk about it, First John in particular, is indwelling sin. There is the remaining sin within us. I think I shared with you guys last year the three P's of sin. That sin's penalty has been paid, sin's power has been broken, but sin's presence remains until Jesus comes again or He comes you home. And so there's a painful detachment that God calls us to, killing something that's been a part of our life, that's been a warm blanket of sorts. But we are called not to play around with it, not to feed it, not to pet it, but to kill it. That's not easy. And it's gradual. Uh, what made crucifixion so heinous was how long it took someone to die. Because it was slow suffocation. Slow. And there are no quick fixes. I, I wish that I could say to each one of us, tomorrow we, we could wake up and be different. And certainly that is in God's purview. That is in His realm of power to do. But I asked this question earlier, and I want to come back to it. Why would God not do that? Uh, there's an author who wrote a, fat, a, a wonderful book called Extravagant Grace, and her name is Barbara Duguid. She's a pastor's wife uh, up in Pennsylvania. 
And in that book, she said this. She, I'm paraphrasing, but she said essentially, if the Spirit's job is to make us sinless and, and strong and have resources within ourselves for all the daily battles that we face, He is doing a terrible job. But if the Spirit's job is to constantly and consistently point us to Jesus and our great need for Him, He is doing a fantastic job. I would submit to you that the reason that we are going to battle with the Spirit of God in us and by the grace of God through us with sin for the rest of our life is so that we would never depend on ourselves. So that in every step along the way, we would be wholly and totally and completely dependent on God. Always. You can't get away from Him. You always need Him. The grace that saved you is the very grace that you need to sustain you. You never move away from it. And it's fine. This is the good news. Going back. And you have this very great and precious promise. Eternal life. Eternal life for all of those who believe in Jesus. God is not fighting a losing battle. He is not. He is the victor. And we are in Him. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for the promise of spiritual Thank You for giving us spirit. In Jesus' name, Amen. To uh, take your copy of the hymnal and turn to hymn 440.